This is episode 102 of your favorite film show podcast. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. The Film File. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And you are joining us for the momentous second show of the year. Why it's momentous? Why not? <laughs> It's as simple as that. Why not? Every show should be momentous. Sometimes just getting around to recording it is a momentous task. It's Andy, how are you? It was a special occasion. Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a bit throaty and coffee and um, um, head coldy today. Uh, I've not done one of those tests yet, but I will be doing one pretty soon because I'm starting to worry because there's a lot going on. There's yes. a lot of outbreak at the moment, and now I'm doing daily tests. I've got a day off work today. I don't necessarily need to do a test until tomorrow, but I'm going to do one this afternoon just to be sure. Because tomorrow night, we've got our staff Christmas party. Oh, right. And I, I said last week, it's guaranteed that if I get COVID, I'm going to get it the day before the party, aren't I? Yeah, that's the way it works. It's always something momentous that you um, you get it for. It's like yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't drink anyway, as we've like, I mentioned on previous shows that I, I stopped like last year and last week, it was celebrate my first year without it. Uh, but I'm still looking forward to just having a fun night out with the team because I love the team that I work with. It's a yeah, great a environment bunch. to work in. Um, I'm, I, please don't let, let this just be a head cold. Let this not be the, the dreaded C word. But um, aside from that, uh, this week I've been I've, I've been watching me shorts. Okay, why don't you watch some short films instead? Yeah, I've been watching I've, I've been watching short films. Um, I, I, I've got just after the new year yet. I found it hard to get motivated to watch films. And I was watching like one or two films a day last year, as I've mentioned on the year-end review thing. And I, I think I just burnt out. And it started. I started to feel that watching films felt like a chore. So for the past right. two weeks, I've only watched a handful of films over the two weeks, but I've watched a lot of short films just to keep that interest into it. And the, th the good thing about short films is that they're usually quite experimental and creative. So I'm starting to see some, some of the reasons why I love films so much by watching short 15-minute or 30-minute um, entries. Now, in order to pick out which ones to watch, I did a search for Oscar shorts on Amazon and loads came up because I wanted to plug me Oscar history gap at the same time. And then from there, you get the recommendations. Because you've watched this, maybe you'll like this. And I've just gone down that rabbit hole and I've found some absolutely marvellous joys. Some of them have just been a mess. There's been a few um, Oscar-nominated shorts that have just thought, how did that get nominated for an Oscar? But <laughs> that's part of the joy of enjoying enjoying film is you'll always uncover something that people rave about that you can't, you can't understand why people rave about them. But yeah, if you ever feel that you're getting burnt out watching films, if you ever feel get to the stage where you're just like, oh, why do I put myself through this again? And after the films that I've watched this week, I could quite validly walk away from films forever and say I'm never touching them again, um, <laughs> which we'll get to when we get to the reviews. But if you ever feel that's that stage that you're starting to not appreciate films and you don't want to be that kind of person, go searching for some short films. See, see what creative up-and-comers being experimental can actually bring to the world that you enjoy. And it, it's reinvigorated me now. And I've now started lining up a load of films to watch over the next week. Well, interestingly enough that you say that, you know that I teach a film course. So I have been teaching over the last week, since coming back after Christmas, uh, um, 
a series of short films and, and looking at mm. writing short films. So I can recommend a, a good couple of short films to you, Andy. Um, there's a series of science fiction short films on YouTube, really good quality, big budget, and I think they they go under the label of Dust, uh, and there's some cracking short films in there. One in particular I want to recommend is called The Black Hole, which is exactly the reason that a short film works perfectly. And then uh, um, you want to see something that, that looks good, is expensive, but really plays with the short film format. And that's a film called The Gunfighter. Um, get and watch. You'll, you'll, you'll thank me for them, for, for both of them. Very, very good I short could. films. I'll pop them onto my list. Do so. Anyway, in this week's show, we're going to be talking about the whole big enchiladas, the big releases of the week. Andy's going to be reviewing. I'll be taking a look at what um, Venom, Let There Be Garbage, I mean, Let There Be Carnage, which has landed on streaming for rental this week. A bit of a spoiler on that one, then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'll also be reviewing the new feature at the big screens, The King's Man. Okay, and you and I will be talking about... The 355. Which is a new spy movie with an all-female leading cast starring Jessica Chastain. We're going to be doing our deep dive this week into The Hitcher starring Rutger Hauer. We'll be offering our neat things, but before any of that, here's this week's news. So as ever, we start the news by having a quick look over the box office, and I'm guessing it's going to be pretty obvious what the number one film worldwide is and what isn't. So surprise me. So the box office this week, and it's no surprise to hear that once again, a certain Spider-Man who one of these days they'll let us know who it is under that mask it has hit the top spot worldwide. In the US, it's continuing to smash records. It is now sixth place in the all-time box office figures chart. And worldwide, it's currently at eighth place, not too far behind The Lion King, which is in seventh, and Jurassic World, which is in sixth. I reckon that by next week, it will be up into sixth place. Will it get as far as fifth place? It's looking unlikely because that's when you get into the two billion figures. And it, the film is currently on 1.5 billion worldwide. But it is important to note that it's still not being released in China. Uh, the Chinese market on the previous film contributed 100 million. And what we've been seeing with Spider-Man is that pretty much every territory that it's arrived in, it's done double what the previous Spider-Man film did. So it might get there. We'll have to wait and see. Elsewhere in the US, Sing 2 has continued to draw in family audiences, uh, collecting another 12 million this past weekend, taking it to over 109 million so far to date. And internationally, it's taken 81.8 million so far. It's not been released in all territories yet. It gets released in the UK in just over a week's time. So it's still got a fair bit to be able to make worldwide. Its current three-week global total is 190 million. The first sing topped out at 270 million, so it's got potential to get close to there. Whether it will reach it, not too sure on that at this point in time. But it's doing really well. It's the first animated movie since Frozen 2 that has passed the 100 million mark in the US. So again, another box office trendsetter. Third place in the US, and it's not a strong third place. It's severely underperformed, and that's the 355. The Espionage Ensemble, 
starring Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, Penelope Cruz, Diane Kruger. We'll be talking about it later in the show. It's had a lot of bad buzz around it, and it, it couldn't manage to nab any interest or any business. As a result, taking in only £4.8 in its opening weekend. The King's Man held fourth place in the US, and American Underdog retained fifth place. Not a lot of surprises in there. The 355, a disappointing start to its run. It's not going to perform well, and it's not performing well internationally either. But the top two will probably remain the top two until, well, until this weekend when a certain horror franchise that is tracking very well comes out. So in lieu of us reviewing it, I'm not going to give you our opinion of it, but I I don't think I'm deeply surprised by the box office take for 355. And I think one of the problems is it's one of those films that should have just gone straight to streaming. I think it would have found an audience there. Uh, and when you've got the biggest film in the world as your competition, okay, they didn't know when they set the release date. I think that's the problem. And I also think the big problem is is the title because the title doesn't tell you anything. It's not like Ocean's Eight, which was a, a a pure giveaway. Yeah, you don't know what kind of genre this is. It's mentioned in the movie, and as you said when we talked about this, very late on in a throwaway line that if you get up to go to the toilet, you'll miss why it's called that. But I don't think it's an effective title. There's a, another British film coming out, Operation Mincemeat, which is the worst title for a film ever. Because, uh, interestingly enough, it's a remake, and we'll probably talk about it when it's, it's close to its release date. But that title tells you absolutely nothing. To me, it sounds like one of those old, styly World War II comedies as opposed to what it actually is, a true a true life story. I mean, I get that Operation Mincemeat was the actual designation given to the operation in 1943. Yeah. But naming the film after it, only people who know about wartime history and know of the operation will know why the title is called that. Everyone else will just go, what? Are they just making sausages? I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't sell it at all. And it's a hard sell anyway. As a film, it's a you know a, a British wartime film, which is only a certain amount of uh, audience appeal to it. So it just doesn't do it any favors, as you said. If you if you're in the know, then you know. And I think titles are a big part of the sell. And uh, and I think the three five five doesn't tell you what kind of a film it is. And if you're not prepared to do the digging, if you're not you're just a regular cinema goer, then there's one reason for for walking past it. Anyway, that's the box office. Moving on to the news, what have we got? So um, it's it's time to break out our song, set the vinyl onto play, because <laughs> the release day shuffle is back in style. It's the we release could do this day a, shuffle. We could do this as a charity <laughs> single and get other other podcasters into uh, uh, into singing. Oh man, there, there's an idea. <laughs> we all we all come up with one line, and then I'll just find some backing music to put to it. Um, yeah. Do we do it as a rap, a salsa? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll have a go. See what I can turn out. But uh, Sony Pictures has pushed back the release dates for Morbius, which stars Jared Leto. It was originally due to come out at the end of this month on January January the 28th. It's now been put back to not one month, not two months, but it's April the 1st. We're talking just over two months. So there's either the reason that it's COVID and they want to find a good gap or they have no faith in this film whatsoever and waiting for a window. I think that a lot of distributors are going to use COVID as an excuse Yeah, when it's not an excuse at this point in time. Because 
there are some rumblings from sources close to Sony that whilst their official announcement is due to the surge in Omicron variant and people like you know being unwary about going out, yet well, Sony, one of your films has just done one point three billion in two and a half weeks, so that doesn't quite wash with us. I suspected as soon as this announcement went, and I've seen rumblings from sources within the industry that this is more a case of they want to move Morbius to the next quarter because they've already got their money that they want from this quarter because of Spider-Man. So if they push this into the next quarter, it makes their financials for the year look a lot better. It means that Uncharted and Morbius will be boosting their coffers for the first half of this year. Uh, That makes more sense to me. But the using COVID as an excuse, because they they just expect that if they say, well, because of COVID, we're going to delay things. People just go, oh, yeah, we understand that. Well, we don't because we can see that people are returning to cinemas. We've just seen it over the past month. So none of that washes with me anymore. Um, For those who don't know what Morbius is and where have you been, because this film was due for release like four years ago or something. Jared Leto stars as Michael Morbius, a scientist suffering from a rare blood disease who attempts to cure himself, but instead becomes afflicted with a form of vampirism. And it's another one of Sony's Spider-Man universe films that aren't necessarily linked to the MCU and seem to be going for a grim, dark kind of approach. One film that I was looking forward to that was due out next week. It was due out next week and it's now moved to late February. And that's Cyrano which is the latest yeah. adaptation of Serrano de Bergerac, which I have seen pretty much every interpretation of that story on screen or drama or whatever. And I think it, I've loved the story. And I've been so looking forward to this new take on it, where instead of it being a large protruding nose, Serrano suffers from dwarfism and so sees himself as like a grotesque, despite the fact that he's intelligent, witty, and people fall for his charm. It's a great story. Can't wait to see it. Uh, Peter Dinklage is always great in films. I absolutely adore him on films. It's just a shame that I've got to wait a bit longer for this one. I know. We were talking about this the other day, weren't we? And we both were so positive about about the idea of what they'd done with this and how they were going to to rework the, the story. It's one of those classic stories that you could go anywhere with it, and and we know that they have. There's been the the classical take, um, the uh, Depardieu version. There's been the Steve Martin take with Roxanne. Yep, it's, Roxanne. It's it's such a, a classic story that can be used to say something about about modern day in in a in as all great great stories can, and 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 have some resonance about contemporary life. So yeah, disappointed. Looking forward to this, but we'll be there when it eventually does see the light of day. So I've got a little bit of news. Kelvin Harrison Jr. is to star in another biopic, Samo Lives, of the legendary artist Jean-Michael Basque. Now, there's already been uh, a version of this which starred Jeffrey Wright as the, in the role of Basque and, and David Bowie as Andy Warhol, which was a, was a great movie. So interesting to see what they're going to do differently with this version. Moving back to films that have been shuffling or cancelled in this case. And Disney have announced that their next Pixar film, Turning Red, is going to be a Disney Plus exclusive. Not a premium, it's going free to Disney Plus. Soul and Luca both did this, and when Soul and Luca came out uh, straight to Disney Plus, Disney did vow that the next Pixar film would go to cinemas. But, and this is the quote that annoys me, given the delayed box office recovery, particularly for family films, flexibility remains at the core of our distribution decisions. Now, I've got a couple of issues with that statement that official announcement as to why they're doing it. Delayed recovery. Haven't I just mentioned that one film has just done 1.3 billion over over a two and a half week period? 
So there's no delayed recovery. This is the time when films are coming back. And in addition, particularly family films. So Sing 2 is not doing well in the US then. Oh, no, it is. Sing 2 is actually doing pretty well. So surely a Pixar-branded film should be expected to do well. This is Disney, who, let's not forget that they've released their own animations from Disney Animation Studios, Ray of the Last Dragon and Encanto, to cinemas. They are once again, for want of a better term, screwing over Pixar's animators by declaring that their animations are not worthy enough for the big screen. And let's be honest, Pixar's animations are more than worthy for the big screen. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? I mean, let's try and figure this through, but why are they uh, are they so down on on Pixar? I mean, they they released Encanto. Now, Encanto was was okay. Uh we yeah. both enjoyed it, but we thought it was slight at the best of times. So, what are the reasons that they are they have this this uh it feels like some sort of vendetta and their Pixar's own animators have mentioned this that they they're hugely disappointed. Don't get it. Don't get yeah. it. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of the Pixar team branching off to create their own independent studio at this rate because they are getting disgruntled at the whole affair that's going on. There's clearly something deeper than just market forces at play yeah. on this. Where that goes, who knows? But uh, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot more behind the scenes than we are, are being told. Clearly there is. Now, whilst Disney are still saying that Lightyear, which is due out later this year, will be going to cinemas for definite, they said that this would go to cinemas for definite, and now they've pulled it off cinemas. And this is the thing that really irks me, is that, by all means, release it on Disney+, Plus, but let cinemas show it at the same time, because there are some people who will still choose to go to the cinema. We, at our cinema, are still showing Encanto, and it's still pulling in an audience, enough for us to keep going it. It's been on Disney+, Plus for two weeks, but we're yeah. still getting money from it. So give people the option. Let people choose. If you're going to drop something on streaming, let the cinemas get it as well. Yeah. Huge disappointment. Or it's, or it's not a great movie. The fact it might not be a great movie could be a big part of it. I, you know, I'm only surmising until we get to see some reviews on it. I mean, that, that's rare when it comes to Pixar. I mean, yeah. aside, aside from The Good Dinosaur, I will, and Cars 2, I, I kind of blocked that one from my memory. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy to rewatch any of the Pixar films. But moving on to something which got me a bit more excited. So there's, we've spoken before about the um, upcoming Battlestar Galactica projects. There's a, yes. a movie in like various stages of development and there's a TV series. Well, initially it was thought that they would both be separate parts of the franchise, not connected. But it appears that it's all going to be part of a larger whole. The new TV series was in development since 2019, uh, which had Mr. Robot showrunner Sam Esmail producing it. Now... Things haven't progressed much beyond the pilot still being in the works, but the long-in-development film adaptation uh, picked up steam with filmmaker Simon Kinberg tapped to write and produce the film alongside Dylan Clark. And recently he's been talking with Collider to promote the 355, which we'll talk about later. Um, Kinberg's attachments to Battlestar Galactica, by the way, has not done me favours. But he said, we're in the process of going out to directors in the hope is to attach a director and start prepping the movie this year. So, thankfully, he'll get someone else to direct it. It's a humongous film, and the prep will be very long prep. But I'd imagine that even if we attach a director today, it will take six, nine months to prep this movie properly. So, at the earliest, we'll be shooting at the end of this year. We'll probably be shooting at the beginning of next year. Time will tell who the director is, and then you or someone else will tell who the director is. But then he went on to confirm that the film and planned TV series are actually linked together. 
In terms of the situation with Sam and the show, I can't say too much about it other than there's a synergy between the two enterprises and constant communication between us. We've become close and been having a really good time together. And there will be, for lack of a better phrase, and it's an overused phrase, a shared universe. Obviously, the question comes up is, is Ron Moore's acclaimed sci-fi series going to be part of this shared universe? Kimberg said that there will be connections, but it's certainly not simply a continuation or remake of Ron, Ron Moore's masterpiece. It's, it's going to be interesting because for everything that I loved about the Ron Moore masterpiece, apart from towards the end of the, the last season, I kind of missed the hokiness of the Glenn Larson 70s version. Uh, and I would like them to, to find a middle ground, if at all possible, between the Ron Moore version and, and uh, the original version and, you know, play it as the Battlestar Galactica because it was always underused, the idea of Battlestar yeah. Galactica originally and uh, it, was, it was clearly a Star Wars ripoff but they could have done an awful lot with it and I would like them to go back to that if I have a say, which I, clearly I don't, <laughs> that would be what would interest me. I would be really intrigued to do an updated version of the, the original series because what Ron Moore did was absolutely unique and took something that was hokey and, and took it into a into a direction no one thought it would go, and uh, and still stayed true to the original idea. But I'd like them to go back and almost the Egyptian kind of uh, uh, Helmety type thing and all that kind of thing. I I quite like that. So I'd like it to be a bit more Glenn Larson than 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 the Ron Moore version. But I, that would be me. Just my own personal wish list. I mean, fans of comic books who've read the comic book um, spin-offs from the original series will know that it doesn't have to be necessarily be hokey to be faithful to that style of storytelling. Yeah. There were some great stories that came in the comic books that picked up the threads that were left after the old TV series finished and before the um, Galactica 80, because that was terrible. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's never go there again. No but yeah, I, mean, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think that they should. I don't think they should go for the gritty Ron Moore approach because I don't think they should step on the toes of that version. I think they should go for the more sci-fi fantasy elements. Go for a Star Warsy kind of elements using yeah. the Battlestar Galactica concept. Uh, it will give the you know. I think that'll be more appealing, particularly for the cinema version. For the movie, yeah. go for that because that's what audiences will lap up. On on the series, by all means, go a bit darker. Go a bit Mandalorian. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot, lot of potential. There's a lot of potential. Comics author Ed Brubaker has joined the creative team for the HBO Max and Cartoon Network Batman Caped Crusader animated series. Now, this is a show that got us excited when we first heard about it. Uh, and they've released some production art, haven't they, as well this week? They have. And it looks, whilst it's similar in basic design to what we saw in the 90s Bruce Tim animated series, which Bruce Tim is heavily involved in the production of this. It's also lent heavily into the very early Batman stylings from the comic books, the very elongated ears and, you know, the, the simple chest em emblem. It looks great. Uh, I, I'd expected nothing more from Bruce Tim because what he gave us in the 90s, the animated series, was considered by many to be the definitive Batman adaptations onto the screen. I'm one of those many. I am. This new version, he said oh, a couple of months ago when it was first announced, that this was a chance for him to re-explore the themes that he wanted to explore in the 90s version, but being on a network TV, he wasn't allowed to touch. And it's going to be a kind of origin, early years Batman thing, where his rogues gallery hasn't been generated yet. And you'll start to see the rogues gallery launch from it. Uh, Matt Reeves is co-producing alongside him with J.J. Abrams. 
It's going to be a 10-episode first season, and Brubaker is going to serve as head writer alongside Tim, who is the showrunner. So uh, this is looking juicy. Yes, uh, the the look of it really goes back to the the very first issue of Detective Comics with with Batman with the very long ears, and, and yep. uh, uh, it, it captures that very early days of, of the original comic. So yeah, interested. Well, more than interested, giddy with excitement. I think is a, is a better way to put it. <laughs> Giddy with excitement. Alison Johnny has signed on to star in the sci-fi feature True Love, which is written and directed by Gareth Edwards. Uh, John David Washington, Gemma Chan, Danny McBride and Benedict Wong will also star in the film, of which we know absolutely no details, no plot, and there's been no leaks on. All that we know is that there's quite a good night lineup of names in there. And Gareth Edwards, generally interesting. Yes, he went very quiet after Rogue One. And, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, lots of discussion of, as how much of his actual vision made it into the final film i mean clearly he has a very distinctive visual style and you could see his visual style uh, across yeah. the movie but uh, as as we kind of now know there were there were other hands involved in the final production uh, chris yeah. evans who we're waiting for for the buzz lightyear movie is developing a gene kelly film whether he's going to play the golden age uh, actor who knows but um gene kelly was uh, we talked about musicals briefly a couple of weeks ago my second favorite musical of all time is singing in the rain Uh, and gene kelly could literally in my opinion float on air not only a a a fantastic dancer great performer superb vocalist but a a very very talented director as well and uh, i'm interested to see where what goes with this he was an interesting character gene kelly and uh, chris evans wouldn't have been my my go-to thought for for portraying him but now it's mentioned Maybe I can see it. Yeah, it's it's one of those bits of casting that just came, comes from left field, but kind of makes sense when you think about it. Uh, apparently, the story on this film is going to follow a 12-year-old boy who works on the MGM lot in the early 50s and begins to create an imagined friendship with the movie star, Gene Kelly, whilst working on his next film. And it's set during that era that he came straight off like the success of American in Paris on the town, Summer Stock, and there was the release of Singing in the Rain, to when he then went to Europe to shoot through three movies, including the pet projects that later bombed. So it's that part of Gene Kelly's career that going from success to potential box office bombs left, right and centre. Jodie Comer, on the other hand, is no longer starring in Ridley Scott's Napoleon drama, Kit Bang. Yeah. Uh, Scott has now hired Vanessa Kirby to play Josephine, opposite Waquan Phoenix, who is playing, of course, Napoleon Bonaparte. It's one of those exits that just came a bit out of left field, especially with how well she worked with Scott on The Last Duel. Yeah, I mean, apparently it's due to COVID and changes of schedule and she doesn't think she could make it anymore, uh, um, uh, which in her own inimitable style, she said, it's just rubbish. She couldn't do it. <laughs> Blunt and to the point. Apparently James Gunn has spoken with the Hoff on a few occasions about the idea of a modern continuation of the 1980s TV show Night Rider. <laughs> For those who aren't as old as the rest of us, uh, the series followed David Hasselhoff as Michael Knight fighting crime and solving mysteries with the aid of his sentient AI-driven car, Kit. And as Gunn has said, my friend David Hasselhoff and I have discussed doing a modern continuation of Knight Rider many times. The primary hurdle has been there aren't enough hours in the day to do all the cool things I want to do. Now, there's been a recent news of an attempt to reboot the film over the past couple of years. Okay. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see something come 
out of this idea at some point. Um, Josh Hartnett has joined the ever-growing cast for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, uh, a huge ensemble cast, and um, we don't see enough of Josh Hartnett. He's a, he's a good actor. Uh, yeah. And one of those actors who decided very early on in his career that he wasn't going to go the leading man role yeah. and decided to go for character parts instead. Yeah, it, he's an interesting character actor. Um, I think he'll be a great addition. Here's hoping, and here comes the pun, this film doesn't bomb. Oh, see what you did there. See what you uh, speaking did there. of bombs, and particularly a band named Sex Bob-omb, uh, Scott Pilgrim is set oh, to go to Netflix. The, that was the masterful. That was a masterful <laughs> segue. Thank you. A, I, I, will, I will take that win. That was brilliant. I'm so proud of myself for that. <laughs> um, Scott, ah, Scott Pilgrim is set to come to Netflix in a new animated... I have. I've worn myself out. Um, Set to come to Netflix. Stop interrupting me. God damn it. (laughs) We'll never get this show finished. Leave this in. (laughs) Oh, the radio people won't know what they miss. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Pilgrim is set to come to Netflix in a new animated adaptation of the Brian Lee O'Malley comic books. The story, as we know, has been adapted to screen by Edgar Wright in 2010. But fans of the comic know that there were quite a few changes to the story and quite a chunk of admissions, which allow for a fantastic pop culture and energetically witty revisit in animated format. The action fantasy romance comedy follows Scott, a bassist in a garage band named Sex bob who sees his life turned upside down when he meets Ramona Flowers and finds he has to battle all her evil exes. O'Malley is writing and executive producing, and Wright will also produce. Now, I'm excited about this because I love the the comic book that it was adapted from. I absolutely adored what Wright did, but I always wanted to see more, and I'm quite looking forward to seeing it in animated form. I've played the video game. I've done everything. I've even got the tabletop board game. Have you read Eric Larson's critically acclaimed novel, that blends reality and fiction, The Devil in White City. I have not. Well, hang on to your horses because it's been uh, long in development, as I said. Uh, It looks like now it's going in as a TV option uh, produced by Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese. And the big news is that Keanu Reeves is in negotiations to star. So um, we've seen that a lot. Television used to be the the graveyard for for cinema actors who uh, just were no longer box office or big star draws, and then they'd go to TV. But now you're getting big name stars doing those crossovers, especially when they do uh, a a limited uh, season. Yeah, there's a beautiful there's a beautiful synergy between um, cinemas and TV in the modern era, and it it, you know it kind of came about thanks. I'd say it's primarily due to how HBO started using names like Scorsese as producers or directors on things and Fincher, and it raised the profile of TV shows. Yeah, you think of like um, uh, True Detective, for instance. Yeah. So anyway, this is about a brilliant and fastidious architect racing to mark his mark on the world and the serial killer, Dr. H.H. Holmes, who might not have gained the infamy of Jack the Ripper, but he's alleged to have killed a slew of people around the time in 1893 around the World's Fair in Chicago. Uh, interested in this? I've never heard of the novel, but I might give it a go based on uh, based on that. So we've spoken a few times about Wes Anderson and his film that's in production, Asteroid City, which has already been shot and is in post-production now and stars 
people like Tom Hanks, Margot Robbie, Scarlett Johansson, as well as his usual. Well, news has finally come out about what the next project that he was heading to England to start shooting on rapidly. So before we were excited and now we're super excited. Yeah, oh, well, I get prepared to get even more excited because it's a Roald Dahl adaptation for Netflix, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. I don't know that one. It's one of the, the seven in his 1977 collection, the, one, the Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More, which targets the slightly older audience than Dahl's other literary works. It follows a wealthy man with a penchant for gambling who discovers a doctor's report about a patient from India who learned a technique to see through and around objects. And he attempts to master the art so he can, you know, cheat and does so enough effectively to cheat at gambling before becoming a philanthropist establishing orphanages even as the mob are on his tail for taking all their money it's a cracking tale and i think it's perfectly suited to um, wes anderson's style we know that wes anderson has already adapted one role doll story in animated format in the past which is the, the fantastic mr fox which is fantastic this has currently got a cast which is seen the names of ray fines dev patel and Ben Kingsley and Benedict Cumberbatch, who will be playing the title role. Whether there'll be roles for the rest of his usual cohort, of course, there's got to be a Bill Murray role in there. There has to be. You can't have a Wes Anderson film without Bill Murray. Very excited. And with it being Netflix, we, we know that Wes Anderson tends to do his own thing anyway, and no one tells him what to do, and he delivers a Wes Anderson film. But he'll have the complete creative freedom that Netflix offers. There's been some trailer drops this week. There was the utterly crazy... Uh, Moonfall trailer which landed this week. <laughs> Who knew? Who Film knew it, was gonna, it was going to be that crazy. <laughs> it even seems crazier than the usual Roland Emmerich, and yet it feels exactly like a Roland Emmerich flick. The trailer dropped for uh, Peacemaker, the R-rated new trailer, that is. I, I don't know now with the failure of Suicide Squad, and we love Suicide Squad as we as we talked about, but I don't know whether this is going to find the audience that they think it's going to go because it all depends on what what you thought of the movie yeah yeah it's gonna be a hard sell for people who either a didn't see the suicide squad movie or b didn't like the suicide squad's movie yeah so i, I don't know we've got the trailer for season three of ricky gervais's caustic comedy afterlife and we mentioned her earlier uh season four trailer of killing eve uh, has landed this week as well uh that's it for the news but sadly of course um, and it, it always when we have to, to start a line by that, uh, it means that we're going to be talking about some some passings and two major passings in, in the last week. Hollywood icon. And there's not many actors where the term icon is absolutely as, as apt as this one. Uh, Sidney Poitier passed away at the age of 94. He was a, an actor, a director and an activist who became a, a, an icon due to his to literally, I was going to say groundbreaking, but, but broke new ground. He was the only black Best Actor Oscar winner up until Denzel Washington won in 2001's Training Day, after Poitier had won in 1958, when he was nominated for The Defiant Ones. Yeah. Uh, some, some great films like scattered throughout his career. Blackboard Jungle, No Way Out, Greatest Story Ever Told. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got to talk about uh, To Sir With Love, which Poitier played. Yep. An engineering graduate who takes a teaching job in, in a school in London's, in London's East End, wins over the students. Heat of the Night, which is the go-to uh, Sidney Poitier film for me. Sneakers in Later Life, The Jackal. And of course, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Of course, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah, I know. I, how could I have not mentioned that? Uh, it, was, it was great in everything that he was in. A, a, a truly inspiring actor who did more than just just act, but but just also a, 
a, a fantastic, easygoing screen presence. Even uh, yeah. in his most dramatic roles, he just had that thing that makes people believe in the term star. He was, in, in the truest nature of it, a Hollywood, Hollywood royalty, a Hollywood star. And yeah. then sadly, we report the uh, writer-director and sometimes actor, Peter Bogdanovich died at the age of 82, Oscar-nominated filmmaker, whose passion for cinema went far beyond just the films that he's made, um, the documentary, mm. his, his, his writings. His love of cinema came through in everything that he did. Uh, of course, famously, he was the director on The Last Picture Show, which starred a very young Jeff Bridges and Sybil Danning, Daisy Miller, A Long Last Love, The Beautiful Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, St. Jack, picture show sequel Texasville and then he, he did he did elements where he moved in front of the camera he was the psychiatrist in Sopranos but for yeah. me his standout film will always be the last picture show and his very very first film when he was just coming up because he worked with Roger Corman when Roger Corman was developing such new talent as, as Bodanovich and uh, Francis Ford Coppola and he made uh, a little thriller called Targets about a sniper who takes aim at a driving crowd which is just absolutely brilliant one of the tensest films to this day that i've ever seen fantastic uh, filmmaker one of those iconic filmmakers in the, in the 70s who changed cinema forever i can't really add to that because uh, you've spoken everything that needs to be said our condolences go out to all their friends and families and everyone within the world of hollywood and that is this week's news you're listening to the film file your favorite podcast we hope about film brought to you by me and Andy. In fact, it's the only uh, film <laughs> podcast brought to you by me and Andy, so you can't go wrong there. If you're a fan of the show and you've not subscribed, please head over and subscribe to the show and remember to leave a like. By subscribing, you get additional episodes, you get the extra director's cut versions of shows. Trust me, there are some extra long shows that you just have to hear. But most of all, become part of the Film File family. If you want to know more about the Film File, you can do that as well by simply doing this. Head on over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK. Head on over to Instagram, TikTok or Facebook. Have a look for Filmfile UK or drop us an email. Tell us some of your thoughts on films, your suggestions, what films you want us to talk about, anything you're excited for, anything you hate. We're happy to hear any opinions from any of you guys out there because that's what Filmfile is all about. It's about sharing opinions. It's about community. It's about, as Lee keeps saying, the Filmfile family and no one's ever wrong you can always have a point of view we would not want to be one of those snooty film shows or, or twitter critics who who pan your ideas we want to hear what you think because you're as valid as much as we are i mean throw, i'll throw out the challenge because generally if anyone says that they think paul blartmore copies the funniest film ever made they instantly get a block <laughs> from me but i'll throw out the challenge email in why you think paul blartmore cop is a great film and you know i won't revisit the film but we'll gladly try to put your point forward on the show. <laughs> you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Um, incidentally, off the back of that, uh, we do love doing this show, but we can't do it without you. So if you haven't subscribed, please do so. And, and tell your friends, seriously, let your friends know how much you enjoy the film file. And let's this year um, be able to do some of the things that we've been talking about for the last couple of years that we'd love to do and, and try and really boost up those uh, listening figures and it's down to you guys and we thank you every time for joining us okay this week's deep dive this is a film that came out in 1986 i remember going to see it with a, a pal of mine and we were blown away back in the day 
pre the internet where you just sometimes would pick up Fangoria or Starlog to read about the upcoming films. We knew very little about this, but we both had an interest in Rutger Hauer, who we'd seen, of course, in Blade Runner and blew us away. I was also interested in the scriptwriter Eric Red, but more about him later. This is the 1986 American road thriller, The Hitcher. Hello, police. Stand where you are! I got sprayed by this guy I picked up hitchhiking. Do you believe me? Do I look like a killer to you? starts the moment he stops the hitcher the story is a simple one so a murderous hitchhiker stalks a young motorist across the highways of west texas the film stars a very young c thomas howell as we said rutger hauer in the title role jennifer jason lee jeffrey demon and boy is this a great super tight thriller as I said, I saw this upon its release and have loved it ever since. Picked it up on VHS and then picked it up subsequently on DVD. It's one of those films that has a, a kind of a Hitchcock style to it, but it kind of has a, a Rutger Hauer as almost an elemental form. It could be a personification of Satan, the way this character survives and moves forward. His motivations are, well, different for this kind of film. This is not your usual slasher movie. This is a character who knows what he's doing, and for some reason, deep down inside, wants to be stopped. It plays out in a hyper-real way, and the intensity from Rutger Hauer, who at that point still wasn't a big star in uh, outside of his, his native country, but this, along with Blade Runner, put him on the map. Andy, your thoughts on The Hitcher? Now, this is a film that I was too young to watch when it came out at the cinema. When it came out on VHS, it was one of those VHS rentals that I rented out, watched, Watched a couple of times before we had to return the tape. Absolutely loved it. And then I've never re-watched, but I've always championed. And so through the decades since this, I mean, it's, it's we're talking like three and a half decades since it came out. I've still championed the film, despite only having casual memory of what the film was. And so it was a quite a nice surprise to go back and revisit it this week, to find that what was in my memory was actually pretty spot on, despite the fact that what was in my memory was more gory than what I saw in the film. Yes. And I love this aspect. Now, you've said that like it's a very simple framing. It's a very, it's very dual. Yeah, it's dual with a person, isn't it? Yeah, and a dangerous cat and mouse game, and it's very tightly plotted. It doesn't waste any time unnecessarily. And it's all about Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer is the central presence throughout this. Even when he's not on screen, his lingering menace is still there. But... I had memories of this being a much bloodier and much gorier film. And re-watching it and seeing that you don't actually see most of the deaths. In fact, a lot of it takes place off screen. Even in some cases, you don't even see the bodies that have been left. You just see the remains of cars and assume that there's things in there. And it's the reactions that it plays on. It's the reactions of C. Thomas Howell's character, Jim, as he starts to... After he's managed to get rid of this weird hitcher himself who was like who was freaking him out, he then starts to get toyed with by him. And it's it's that balance between the two. Rutger Hauer as this menacing hitchhiker who, for some reason, is not only killing people, but wanting to somehow frame um, C. Thomas Howell. 
for the crimes, playing with him, manipulating him, many times able to kill him there and then, but actually toying with him throughout. And that's what makes it engaging, that interplay between them. Yeah, it is a cat and mouse, isn't it? Yeah, and like you said, Rutger Hauer's John Ryder seems to want to be killed as well. He, it, it's as though he's doing these dangerous games and killing people because he just wants someone to kill him. He has no motive. He's just a complete unknown. He's just a presence of evil. And Rutger Hauer said in interviews that he saw it as he was playing the personification of evil itself. There was no reason for his existence on those roads except to spread mayhem and death. It's it's a cracking film. It's so tightly shot. It's so well presented. And it bombed when it came out. Yeah, which is unbelievable because it was one of those films that I remember everybody talking about. Um, it had uh, an intensity to it. As you say, it's not particularly violent. A lot of the a lot of the horror is off screen, and maybe that's what lost some of the more uh, some of the usual horror fans. But it, it is intense. This cat and mouse between the two characters, and that how C. Thomas Howell's character changes to adapt to staying alive, and uh, and Rutger Hauer's intensity, and he is just a force of nature. As I said, there are there are many times when you think, is this character human? Is he a yeah. personification of evil? Uh, and there's a um, there's a, a, a subtlety to it. But I I, I absolutely um, adored this. It's one of my favourite all time horror movies. Catching up with it for the first time in a long time, I thought how stylish it looked as well. I mean, it's it's mm. very much of the eighties, but it's got a real style to it. Uh, directed by uh, Robert Harmon, who never, never really gave us anything as good as this in his career, went on to, to work a lot in television afterwards, but never gave us anything as strong as this in his career. I have to point out that this was written by Eric Red, who became a, a major screenwriter. For me, Near Dark is his, uh, is the best thing he's, uh, he ever wrote, but he's, a, he's one of those who works within the genre. He was 20 years old when he saw this script. It was inspired by the door song, Riders on the Storm. And you can see that element. It has a an, an almost rock and roll feel to it uh, of, of, a, of a road movie within the movie. Eric Red went on at one point, wrote a an alien script, which didn't get made. Who did a, a, a an interesting alien three take. But it, he's as a career, he's now back to writing. But something odd happened to him where he plowed his car into a cafe, killing people. And then and you reminded me of this, attempted to take his own life yeah. in almost a strange way that, that feels oddly like like The Hitcher. Uh, we also talked to a, a friend of mine, a scriptwriter, who said he saw the screenplay for this film as it was being passed around at the time and said that the, the, the writing was exceptional, so much so that it changed his writing style as a, as a screenwriter in Hollywood. And uh, the nature of it, the, the way that it was written was so lean that you it captured the essence of exactly what the film was when it when it came out. I didn't know, and you mentioned this, that there was actually a Hitcher two. I know there's a remake which we'll mention in a, in, a, in a moment, but there was a Hitcher two that came out in two thousand and three, so nearly twenty years yeah. later. Yeah, the I mean, even though the first Hitcher film was shredded by critics at the time, I mean Roger Ebert gave it um, zero stars, arguing that there was a lack of really? motive or backstory for the killer as a fundamental flaw, which I actually think the lack of motive or backstory is a benefit to this film. But the film grew a cult audience and it was on home release that it started to generate traffic. And so it was that in 2003, a straight-to-DVD sequel, The Hitcher 2, I've Been Waiting, uh, set 15 years after the events of the first film, was released. And C. Thomas Howell reprised his role as Jim, who's now a cop who's got 
he's got psychological issues and he's currently on suspension for using excessive force in an arrest, which starts the film. And then the film starts to follow the template of the original. Jake Boosie is the new hitcher that starts causing menace to um, see Thomas Howell and his partner. And it plays out pretty much the same. It's low rent. It's exactly what you expect from Bargain Bin straight to DVD. I've I've seen it now. Oh, have you? I, it's <laughs> one of them that it? I watched it out. Of, I watched it out of curiosity, and I kind of wish that my curiosity hadn't um, gotten the better of me on it. It's not. I mean, it's not terrible. I'll tell you that it's not terrible, but it is exactly what you expect from a, a low rent straight to DVD release of the early two thousands. It's just there. I I, di- I didn't even know it existed. And of course, there was a remake, because there has to be a remake, from uh, producer Michael Bay, who started doing an awful lot of remakes through his Platinum Dunes um, company. And this was one of them. So a film of the same title came out in 2007, starred uh, Sean Bean in the Rutger Hauer role as John Ryder, uh, Zachary Knighton as the Jim Hurlsley character, and Neil McDonough as Estridge. The remake added a female protagonist. I think it was probably less well-received than the original Hitcher. Uh, I, I never got. I never got to see it. I, I thought the idea of putting Sean Bean in it was was probably the most interesting bit of, of remaking the Hitcher. Sean Bean was fantastic. Sean Bean was a solid representation of the, that same menacing, stoic role that Rupert Howard had brought in. That's slightly unhinged, and you can't quite get a feel for. The problem that this new version had, and this is a problem with all of the Platinum Dunes kind of horrors, is it focused intensely on the gore and the slash. And so you got to see the killings. You got to see the bloodied remains. You got to see the entrails. And it's just like, what made the original film so, so good was that we didn't see it and our imaginations had to piece it together. What you see in this remake is just special effects. And sadly, special effects don't hold up as well as your own imagination. That was the problem with all Platinum Dune, though, wasn't it? Um, there yeah. A lot of style over substance. They they looked like music videos as opposed to looking like movies. They were more influenced by Michael Bay than they were the original films that they, they were based upon. I, I don't have any ever intention of seeing this. And I'm just going to stick with the memory of a, of a great thriller. But before we, we wrap up on it, there is one scene in the movie which absolutely sent shockwaves through the cinema when I saw this and is one of those elements that you think, my goodness, how did they get away with that? And uh, I mentioned that one of the other cast is um, it's a very young Jennifer Jason Lee. Her fate, and if you've not seen the film, uh, I'm not going to give it away, but her fate is unexpected, to say mm. the least, which I don't think you could now get away with. And I don't know if that particular scene was in in the remake but at the time it was a an oh my goodness moment how did they why did they do that but it was uh, as one of those that was that was a wow moment and not necessarily in a, in, a, in a great way but but very very interesting uh, it, turn of it event. kind of broke the conventions of what you expect yes. from certain elements of a horror film i'm not mentioning it because you might go back after after listening to this review yeah. uh, and go see it because it is truly worth seeing. We, we definitely recommend it. I mean, this was a recommendation from Stevie Dan 1969 as one of his top five films of all time. And it's also a film that Christopher Nolan, yes, that Christopher Nolan, cites as one of his favourite films. So if you've not seen The Hitcher, track it down. It's not currently available for free on any streaming platform, but you can rent it or just do yourself a favour and go out and buy it. Well worth it. That's this week's Deep Dive and we'll be back with another one next week. Okay, reviews. Both Andy and I have 
well, Andy in particular has bit the bullet for a lot of us and, and seen a couple of films that, well, I think he's a braver man than I am. But we did get to the cinema together this week to talk about a new spy movie, The 355. Hands! Put your gun down. Three, two, one! Pull the trigger! Or you can listen. We all work for different intelligence agencies. American, British, German, Colombian, Chinese. But now we have a common enemy. They have an army. What do we have? Please don't say each other. We're the 355. I like the new team. We'll take it from here. Andy and I both got to see the 355. It stars Jessica Chastain, Penelope Cruz, Fan Bingbing, Diana Kruger, Lupita Nyong'o as a group of international spies who've got to work together to stop a terrorist organization from, well, starting World War III, basically. Directed by Simon Kinberg, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who's developing Battlestar Galactica, and whose previous directing was uh, Dark Phoenix, yeah. a not-so-popular X-Men movie. <laughs> While there's a lot to like in this film, I think we basically both agree on its delivery. The proposed idea of making a female-led spy movie in the kind of the same spirit of Mission Impossible and James Bond is an appealing one, of which Jessica Chastain not only stars, but also produces. And it is more than just, shall we say, uh, an Ocean's 8. There are reasons for these characters to be together, to do what they do. The idea is a great idea. The delivery, however, leaves a lot to be desired, don't you think? Yeah, conceptually this is a great film. And story-wise, it's a bit formulaic. It's a bit generic. It goes in exactly the places that you kind of expect it to go. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because let's be honest, if you take a look at the Bond franchise, pretty much all of them are formulaic, but you enjoy them anyway, because it's how they're delivered. It's a great cast. All the cast are giving their all in this. Lupita Nyong'o, who doesn't get seen on screen enough, as far as I'm concerned. We're, we're talking about like someone who like was Oscar success yeah, and just then just kind of disappeared into the background for voice work on various things. And everyone seems to be given their all, except for the director. Simon Kinberg, please don't direct ever again. Dark Phoenix was bad enough, but you completely ruined what could have been a really good film here. Stick to writing. I mean, you're not a great writer from what we've seen, but occasionally you're involved in projects that do kind of work. So I'll never write him off completely as a writer because I think a lot of his work gets hacked to bits by Fox Studios and things like that. But clearly you're not suited for Behind the Lens because where this fails is that the presentation makes it sloppy, it makes it choppy, it makes it look cheap. When it's not cheap, it looks like a TV movie, maybe even a pilot to a TV series. And the action, and this is something that will always get me ranting, so I'll rein myself in a bit here. <laughs> but any directors who decide that in order to represent the intensity of action, you must do 14 cuts over 10 seconds from different shots and shake the camera as much as possible to emulate how, you know, if you're in the thick of the action, you're moving around. You're missing the fact that our eyes and brains adjust for any jitters of movements to ourselves. So that doesn't give a natural approach when you shake the camera to say you're in the action. If I was in the action, I'd be able to see it a lot better than what you presented. And this film, you might as well, whenever an action scene starts, just close your eyes, wait half a minute, open your eyes and see who's still alive because that's as much as you get from it. Like there were passing devices a lot. There was 
where they intercepted to get a device back. And the whole sequence was cut and edited so much that you didn't actually see what had happened. You was just like, oh, they've got this now. Oh, I don't know how they got it. Let's go for it. It's awful, awful direction. Awful, sloppy ideas. The editing is over the top. It's two short hours, which two hours these days, when you say that two hour film is short, that just shows what kind of era that we live in. Yeah. Uh, but it feels too long here. It, like I say, I did a comparison to it being feeling like a pilot episode of a TV series. So maybe it should have been one hour long. Great story, great cast, just poorly executed and let it down. Yeah, innovative idea. I love the idea behind it. These these actors needed to be in a better film. As you said, Kimber yes. can't can't direct. He's not a director. I, I never saw Dark Phoenix, so I, I, I have nothing else to go on. But based on this, it was really, really poor in its direction. It felt like a TV movie. And when you're getting TV shows like Superman and Lois, which look a bazillion dollars, mm. then it, it, it was already out of place. It is globetrotting. And, and yet it never, it never feels as though it's globetrotting. Uh, because yeah. everything is 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 in an, an establishing wide, and then lots and lots of close-ups. It feels TV movie esque. This should have had a release onto Netflix or a streaming platform. I know it did in the states. It went straight to Paramount Plus, but I think it would have done better recognition wise than clearly that it's done at the box office by going straight to streaming. And then that's yeah. down to the look of the film. The cast are uniformly great. There's some clever ideas. For instance, Penelope Cruz's character is is terrified all the way through because she just wants to go home to her kids. That's a smart idea. There are lots and lots of smart ideas. The cast are great, and it's kind of fun, but it lets itself down by being so obvious and so so influenced by so many other better better films in it. And 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 everything kind of has been done before except the initial idea, and the initial idea is what carries it. Ultimately, disappointing. Andy, talking of disappointing, I'm looking forward now to your review, nay, should I say, rant, because you've given enough hints throughout the show as to your <laughs> views on the second Venom film. So, on to the review of Venom, Let There Be Garbage, Let There Be Carnage. Before you came along, I had a life. I had a fiance. I had dreams. It would be nice just to have your support just for once. Shut up! Excuse me. Yummy. I am a predator. We should be out there snacking on bad guys. Oh, no! Oh, we got That is a red one. I am starving. So eat those guys. I can't. Sonny and Shir are best friends. I'll, I'll straight out the gate point out that I was not a huge fan of the first film. The first film was very lackluster, very average. I've never been a huge fan of the character of Venom, but there is potential in that character as the later comic book series started to explore it a lot more. But the Venom film just didn't quite work for me, and a lot of that was down to Tom Hardy. But Andy Serkis coming on board as director, it, it left people thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe he can do something with it. I mean, the guy can do mocap, he can do effects work. The, the work that he's done on a plethora of films which have relied on CGI mocap characters will hopefully elevate it. But sadly, it's done nothing to improve on the first film's mess. Indeed, this film is significantly more of a mess. Atrocious effects work throughout and a very slight story that is more just an excuse to mash two symbiotes together again in battle. Because... 
there's the fundamental problem with this film. Everyone who's been clamoring for a Carnage versus Venom mashup fight, we already had Venom versus another symbiote in the previous film. It's just more of the same. Tom Hardy co-wrote the script this time. And given that he was responsible for the infamous lobster tank scene in the first film, it shows. The film leans heavily into what it thinks is comedy, with Brock and Venom as a bickering couple. The film even sees them break up after a disagreement, leading to the symbiote jumping from host to host, killing multiple people, and outing itself at a gay nightclub, which I assume is being played for laughs. But, you know, loads of dead bodies? Are we really supposed to accept that the symbiote can be a jokey, fun character after this? Because I don't. I don't at all. Carnage, played by Woody Harrelson, is even more terrible than the rather one-dimensional version in the comics. And even the usually engaging Woody fails to bring anything of note to the role. He simply plays to his usual shticks, delivering the bare minimum. But when you're buried underneath shocking CGI, what else can you do? By the time the end credits rolled, after, thankfully, just over 90 minutes, I was relieved. A film which is rated for the older audience, but packed with childish humour and bland story. Just an excuse to mash toys together on screen. It's a mess of a film with a serious personality crisis. As for the mid-credits scene, just no. Just no. I'm glad I waited for this to come onto streaming, rather than watching it at the cinema, because I would have felt like I needed to burn the cinema screen down at the end. At least watching it at home, at the point at which it started to infuriate me, I could put it on pause and go for a quick walk. Not a good film. Much worse than the first film is. Do not want this franchise to go any further. I wasn't bothered about seeing it in the first place. I sat through the first one and it had it just washed over me. I, I'm not drawn to it. Disappointing though, because you know, when you think who's behind the camera, yeah. could have been could have been a lot better. Is that his fault or was it Sony's fault? I wasn't at all interested in Kingsman, but I know what you're going to say about it. I am more interested because of your views on it than I than I was in initially. So the King's Man. It is time for a gentleman to become rogues. Let's go. You have no idea what I'm capable of. You're going to need a suit. I might need a shooting jacket. Armed and ready. I never drink on duty. Mm -hmm. We are the first spy organization. Kingsman, is it? And Lady. The first Kingsman film was a hit with audiences, adapting the Bond with Edge spy comics from Mark Miller to the screens in a stylized, witty, and sometimes shocking manner. A sequel followed, but stuck far too close to the template of the first film amping up the moments to the extreme. It was more of the same, only with lesser impact as, as a result. And whilst that sequel opened up the world of the Kingsman by introducing the idea that other nations had their own branches, it lacked the charm of the first. Now this latest entry throws us back to the events that started it all, telling how the organisation came to be. In 1902, during the Boer War, British aristocrat Orlando, Duke of Oxford, played by Ray Fiennes, sees his wife killed and swears to protect their son, Conrad, from the evils of the world, never letting war affect him. Twelve years later, a war is about to break out. Conrad is wanting to prove himself by signing up to fight, but Orlando is doing everything to try to stop him, including running secret undercover operations to find out who the dark organisation manipulating all the events are. 
an organisation that includes the mad monk Rasputin. Now, whereas the first two films were hyperactive in nature, with an intense and rapid style to them that zipped along, making light of all the events, no matter how dark, this prequel is a different beast entirely. It's still shot by Matthew Vaughan, but this time he adopts a sometimes sombre and reflective approach. Whilst it still retains the dynamic energy of the action moments, it's between those flashes that we get the more serious approach. The setting of the story alongside actual events plays well, with the fiction and reality blurring together well, making the whole film feel very much like a wartime spy thriller that it intended to be. Ray finds it as a solid lead, and all the cast around him shine. Gemma Arterton, Tom Hollander, Matthew Good, Daniel Bruhl, Jaimon Hounso, Charles Dance and Aaron Taylor-Johnson. All are great, but it is the unrecognisable Risa Fans as Rasputin who takes the crown here. He eats up the scenery around him. His menacing presence is a sight to behold. Action, like I've said, is handled as deftly as you'd expect from Vaughan. And his use of transitional shots give the film a constant flow from scene to scene. He uses a lot of transitional shots here. A lot. If you appreciate a good transition, you will have a lot to love here. This is a much better entry than the previous film. And with any luck, we'll get to explore this early history of the Kingsman again at some point. I'm not that bothered about seeing any more films following Eggsy in the modern day, but I would definitely follow more of these early adventures of the Kingsman organisation. Matthew Vaughan's an interesting one for me. He's, he's clearly he's a, a very stylized director. Uh, I, th- I think he should have done a Star Wars film. I think he would have made a, a, a great Star Wars director mm. because I think his, his best film for me is is X-Men First Class, which is, which is a superb X-Men film. And he brought the right amount of energy and knowingness. But it's sometimes his knowingness. There's always something a little bit low rent. The same that Guy Ritchie has, that kind of nod and wink sort of style that he pushes too far in all of his films. And even when I'm enjoying it, like the first Kick-Ass, there reaches a point and, and I get frustrated by the knowingness. I had the same problem with the first Kingsman film. The second Kingsman film was was all about that that knowing knowing kind of yeah. glibness to it. And that's what's put me off this particular film. Now, I, I like his work. I like his visual style. I think he'd be better being reined in by a studio and where he can he doesn't have to bring that, that particular element. The same way that uh, Guy Ritchie got reined in for Sherlock Holmes and therefore Sherlock Holmes is one of my favourite Guy Ritchie movies. I think taking that out of Matthew Vaughan makes him a better filmmaker. But that, that's just my opinion. I can see that. Okay, so Andy, what we got? coming up over the next week, both in the cinemas and on streaming. Well, cinemas, it's all about Scream this week, isn't it? Uh, The fifth film in the Scream franchise, which is tracking well on pre-sales, looking to be a huge success internationally as it opens. Looking forward to this one. Hopefully, we'll be talking about this next week on the show. On Now TV and Sky, I know you've been looking forward to this landing on streaming for a while, and that's Pig, the Nicolas Cage starring film that I really raved about last year. I know, um, I have. I, and it's, it's turned up on so many uh, uh, top 10 lists over the year. I really feel I've got to watch it. That lands on the 16th. And there's also a, a British drama called Save the Cinema, uh, which is very apt, um, on January the 14th, which is about a Welsh town that sees their local cinema getting ready to be ripped down. And so all the locals join forces to hatch an ambitious plan, which involves Steven Spielberg and the small matter of his blockbuster dinosaur film to keep the cinema going. Sounds like a fun, charming little film. Uh, I've got a friend who's seen that, says it's it's okay. 
It doesn't yeah. do anything that you wouldn't expect it to do. Over on Netflix, uh, one which I've been looking forward to getting around to watching because it's one of my Oscar Oscar list is Phantom Thread from a few years ago. Ooh, it's one film. of those Oscar films that I never saw. Lands on the 16th. Uh, there's a film called This Is Not A Comedy on 14th of January. And After We Fell lands on January the 17th. Amazon, Hotel Transylvania Transformia. The delayed, postponed, and then scrapped from cinema release animated movie finally makes its way to Amazon. And on Apple TV, another one I've been waiting for, The Tragedy of Lady Macbeth, lands this Friday. Yeah, I'm in on that one. All right, so there's something for everyone in there, and I know what's the top of our list. And that, guys, well, that's about it for this week. Uh, But before we go, and we do this every week, because we enjoy it, and we hope you enjoy it too, but our neat things, things that we've watched, seen, heard, played, ate, you name it, as long as we've enjoyed it, it's our neat things. And as ever, Andy, what's your neat thing? So here's a controversial one. Oh, okay. I picked up in the PlayStation Store sale this week for only £20, a game that has a lot of anger levied towards it, a game that was a mess when it got released, and a game that people told me not to waste any money on. I've got one of those. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it immensely. What is and, it? and that's Cyberpunk 2077. You see, I just heard all of those things about it, and I thought initially when i saw the uh, the reviews for it i don't think i've ever seen such a a, a huge trouncing of a of a, mm. of a game that uh, where clearly so much money had been spent on it including putting keanu reeves as part of the cast that uh i'm i'm eager to find out why you liked it well i'm a fan of the rpg i, I own all of the source books for the tabletop rpg for 2020 and cyber generation which are the two versions that were out when i was in my youth i was looking forward to this game before it came out but i didn't pick it up on release because i started to get wary prior to it launching that we'd only seen rendered footage and not in-game footage and my concerns seemed justified when the release went down poorly but there's been a major patch and a few small updates since and there's a new patch due soon which will give it chance to work on modern consoles this the it'll be the next generation patch which does the ps5 version of it so i threw down 20 quid because i thought you know what 20 quid in a sale sounds like a reasonable price for something that might be an average experience and i'm really pleased that i did the world setting of night city is beautifully realized and the gameplay may be second rate gta it's the story the cool aesthetic and the style of it that I've embraced, because Cyberpunk to me, even on the RPG, has never been about how it plays. It's been about the feel and the mood that it conveys. And the storyline is drawing me in on this. I'm playing a nomad character role. Apparently, the three different roles have different starting points and storylines through. Right. And I'm, in, I'm immersed in it. I let all the play, all the cut scenes play out, even though it puts a, if you wish to skip this, press this. I'm not skipping anything. I love the interaction. I love the world design. Yes, within the first five minutes, there were three graphical, graphical glitches in one room that I was in. I can see the flaws that people are pointing out. I'm hoping they will patch all the flaws that are going on, but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it enough. It's not Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto was like, you know, that franchise had years to develop. And it became something really polished. But if you want something that's a great story that you can really get your teeth into and you don't care too much about the action or the dynamics of like driving sequences, this is a game well and truly worth picking up. Is it worth picking up at full price? Hell no. Definitely not. But it was well worth £20. Uh, it's not my neat thing, but it, interestingly enough, I picked up Marvel's The Avengers, which was another one of those games that came out uh, and got, um, got a slating. Mm. It's not great. 
But you know what? I'm kind of enjoying it. Uh, at first, it was clunky uh, and took me time. I just thought, why didn't they just deliver us and give us a, a great Avengers game instead of the storyline that they picked? But the voice acting and the casting of it is really, really good. Uh, and for that, I'm kind of in. The, the actor who's playing Tony Stark isn't doing Robert Downey Jr. He's doing his, his own take on it. Um, once I got over the fact that this wasn't the Avengers game that, that we should have had, you yeah. know what? It's okay. A bit repetitive, kind of a bit annoyed that you keep having to get tokens to improve costumes and that kind of thing, rather than say how how uh, uh, the Fantastic Spider-Man game where you just earned it. But I'm 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 having a good time with it. Um, is it a classic? No. Is it passing me a, an hour when I when I sit down to play? Yeah, and for that, yeah. it, it's it's okay. Not as bad as I was led to believe. Not as great though as it could have been. Anyway, my neat thing. Uh, as you probably know from listening to the show, both Andy and I are big fans of Salem's Lot. Uh, I had a, a little bit of uh, an issue with a, a present I got for Christmas, and so uh, I had to return it and couldn't find anything. But there amongst the sale was the Blu-ray of Salem's Lot, the TV series, uh, miniseries directed by Toby Hooper, and it starred David Soul and James Mason. Now, point out, I've not had a chance to watch it, but going back and having seen Salem's Lot a couple of times, including the first time it came out when I was just a wee kid, and how much it scared me to death, and how well it captured the Stephen King story in a way that you can do so with with television, a television adaptation. Now, clearly it came out in, in the 80s, so the horror is going to be a bit muted, but who hasn't seen it and was not scared to death by the kid at the window? One of those iconic classic horror scenes so no i've not seen it yet but just the fact that i now own a copy of salem's lot and i've had a real bee in my bonnet about watching this again for some time i hope it holds up even if it doesn't then just watching it through the prism of wow that was good for when it came out i can't wait to watch salem's lot i wouldn't mind revisiting it at some point so once you finish watching it if you want to throw it over my way that'd be great i'll, I'll drop it off did you know they did a uh, another tv version with rob lowe which was a bit yeah. closer in some way to the book but um it was very very poor and of course we've got the remake due from gary doberman and james wan later this year apparently it's due for release towards the end of this year i think it's november december and if everything goes according to plan but yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, you certainly. I'll, I'll drop it down. You can watch it. And that's it for this week, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us ever. Always a pleasure. Cannot do this program on my own because I do need the man at the other end of this microphone, Mr. Andy Meakin. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you could do it on your own, but um, nothing not to be recorded. It wouldn't be the same. I was just talking to myself. <laughs> exactly so you can't do it I, and we've demonstrated that i can't do it on my own as well when <laughs> i actually tried doing an episode on my own and it just felt so wrong it is it as as the people who've listened to the podcast version will know and the people on the radio don't we need the banter because sometimes we have fun just making each other break off um and lee managed to get me to actually lose it today <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen very often but we try our hardest to entertain you across the board. Uh, we'll be back next week, but in the meantime, pull over, begin your cars and nuts.